Uh, let's begin now and ask God for his help. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit that you will humble our hearts to hear your word speak to us and that our hearts may be prepared to be changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Australians love underdog stories, don't we? Except, of course, when Australia lost to the underdog England in the ashes. <laughs> but generally, Australian love underdog stories. It's almost like the Australian virtue that, to support and survive for the underdog. And, and this is a theme we see a lot in the movies, isn't it? It's what great movies are made out of. They're so inspirational. Take, for example, Erin Brockovich, a real person. A movie was made about her in the year 2000. She was an unemployed single mother. She became a legal assistant, and she almost single-handedly brought down a large power company accused of polluting the water supply. It was a great underdog movie. Or take another movie, for example, the Rocky movies. Rocky Balboa, in almost, despite his massive muscles, his pecs, his biceps, in all the movies, he's portrayed as the underdog. And in most of the movies, he's, he comes out from behind as the victor. He's a real person too, wasn't he? Isn't he? No? A great underdog movie anyway. Now let's move back several centuries to the 16th century. Now we come to a century with great underdog stories. Now during this century, there was a, a great naval battle. A naval battle between England and Spain. The Spanish, they sent out a massive fleet. It was a massive fleet. It was almost invincible. It was called the Spanish Armada. And this fleet was sent out to overthrow Queen Elizabeth I. But this massive fleet was defeated by a much smaller British fleet. Great underdog story. Or moving back a couple of decades to Germany. A man... One man, Martin Luther, this one man stood up against the powerful Roman Catholic Church on their teaching of the Bible. Great underdog story. And now come with me back another two and a half thousand years. Back to what I think is possibly the greatest underdog story of all. The story we'll be looking at tonight. The battle between David and Goliath. It's a story that many of us would know and love. And it's a story we'll be looking at. Now, some of you might think, this is really quite a simple story, isn't it? Could there possibly be anything else to learn from this story? Isn't it a story that's simply to inspire us, to boost our self-esteem, to, to encourage us to stand up against that bigger and stronger guy? Is that what this story is about? Or is there, in fact, something more to this story? So as we read revisit this famous story once again, let us go together on an adventure through that battle scene and to hear and to see what God may be teaching us today. So let's look at our passage. So firstly, what is the problem that Israel faced in this story? What was their problem? Well, their problem were the Philistines. The Philistines were this mean and nasty bunch of people. They were the arch enemy of Israel. They were a powerful nation, and they were gathering their forces on one hill, preparing for battle. And on the hill next to them were the Israelite nation. And we see this in chapter 17, verse 1. So have a look at that, chapter 17, verse 1. 
Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. And in verse 3, the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. And so what happened next in this story? Well, there's this big, huge guy who steps forward. Have a look at verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Now, how big was this Goliath? We, we know Goliath to be a massive giant, but how big was he? Well, we're told here that he was over nine feet tall. Now, if you can't do that conversion in your mind to the metric system, have a look at the footnote down the bottom. It says there that he's about three metres tall. That's huge. Three metres tall. That, that would make Goliath taller than the tallest man in modern medical history. Do you know who the tallest man in modern medical history is? Have a look at this. Yes, Robert Warlow. Uh, Robert Warlow, he died in 1940. He was 2.72 metres tall. And that's 2.72. That's his father standing next to him. <laughs> Goliath is taller than this man. Goliath will not even be able to stand up straight in a standard-sized house. He will be licking the ceiling. He had to, you know, tilt his head over. Now, Goliath here is further described as wearing a, a bronze helmet and he's armed with a coat weighing 5,000 shekels. How heavy is that? It's about 57 kilograms. That's heavy. That's the weight of Yvonne before she got pregnant, hanging off this guy's <laughs> chest. That's heavy. And what else are we told here? He carried a bronze spear weighing 600 shekels, and that's about 7 kilograms. Pretty heavy. So Goliath was this big, menacing, powerful giant. He's like this 600-pound gorilla, a big, bad gorilla. And he was the problem that Israel faced. And so what did this Goliath do? Well, if his appearance, his overtowering stature, wasn't enough to scare off the Israelites, he begins to taunt them. He mocks at them and he laughs at them. Have a look with me at verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? So Goliath is saying here, What's the point of fighting? Have a look at me. Look at my muscles. And look at you. You are but ants. And he continues to challenge them. Verse 8 still. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. So what does Goliath want here? Well, he wants a duel, doesn't he? He wants to go face to face with someone. He represented the powerful Philistine nation and he wanted Israel to pick someone who was strong and powerful to represent them. Now Goliath continues taunting them. Verse 10. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now it turns out that Israel have already done exactly that. They have already chosen a man to represent them, to fight for them. And that man was Saul, their king. Saul was chosen because of his big and tall build, Earlier in 1 Samuel, chapter 10, Saul was described as a hair taller than all the others. And so, the perfect candidate to go up against Goliath 
was their king. It was Saul. He was the perfect candidate to represent Israel and to fight for them. But the battle was over before the first shot was fired because Saul was gutless. Saul was a coward. Look at verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So what's the situation now on the battlefront? So what we have is we have two nations. On one hill, you had this big giant, this terrifying giant, Goliath, representing the Philistines. And on this other hill, you had the Israelite nation, but you had no one to represent them. And so Israel had a big problem. They were like Tasmania, going up against the USA. They had no chance of winning. And so Israel had a big problem. So if that was their problem, what could their solution be? Could there be a representative that would come out from their camp to represent them and to fight for them? Well, while the battle lines were still formed, the scene now switches and focuses in on David. David, a little guy at this stage, probably just a teenager and still too young to join the army, he was a shepherd. He tended his father's sheep. And so in this scene, David was given a job by his father to do. He was to bring food from his father to his brothers on the battlefront. And so that was what David did. He went to the battlefront, bring this food um, from his father. And while he was wandering around the camp, he heard about what was happening. He heard the taunts and the threats of Goliath. And after hearing those threats, David was outraged. David was furious. You can almost hear David's blood boiling. Have a look at verse 26. David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David recognised here that the taunting and cursing of Goliath was not only against Israel, it was in fact against Israel's God, the living God. And this is what the Bible calls blasphemy. David was furious and outraged on God's behalf. And it's the way we might feel when someone perhaps burns the Australian flag or burns the Bible. We'll be outraged. Or when someone says something nasty or rude about someone we love, our husband or wife or our parents, we'll be outraged. But when bad things are said about God, that's called blasphemy. And so David, on hearing that, was outraged. So what do we have here now on the battle scene? Well, it was really the same as before, right? You had Goliath representing the Philistine nation, but he now, on the Israel side, not everyone was afraid. There stood out one guy who, rather than being afraid, was outraged. So could this one guy, this teenager... Could he be the one to represent the nation? Could he be this unexpected hero? Now in this story, the scene moves again. And now we get to listen in on on the exchange of words between an old gutless king and a young brash kid. David says to Saul in verse 32 now, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. So David, this small shepherd boy, wants to go up and fight someone more than twice his size. 
But Saul, in his right mind, in verse 33, he says, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But then David here convinces Saul. He, he outlines his CV, his resume. He says, I've struck down lions. I've struck down bears that have gone after my flock. But not only that, the Lord will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul probably thought, well, there's no way I'm going to go out there and fight this giant. If this kid wants to have a go, well, let him go. Let it be. And so he says in verse 37, go and the Lord be with you. So let's consider what's happening here now. There's this tall king who should have been the representative of his nation, who should have gone out and faced Goliath. But yet here, he's allowed this little shepherd to go out instead. David is looking more like the hero here, this unexpected hero. So what happens next? Well, Saul, Saul offers David his heavy armour, his uh, sword, but that didn't work. You can imagine a little kid trying to wear oversized clothes. It just won't fit and it'll be too heavy. After all, Saul was a big man. And so what did David do instead? Well, he took his sling and he picked up five smooth stones from the stream. And that was all he needed. Have a look at verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. So no armour, no sword, just a sling and some rocks. Now, now you would have never expected that, right? To go up against a giant that who would only bring rocks. So just as David was turning out looking like this unexpected hero, his weapons too were very, very unexpected. And now finally we come to the battle scene. David approached Goliath and Goliath moves towards him. And in classic Goliath fashion, he insults David. He despises David. Verse 43. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? You can just imagine at this stage, Goliath would have been pretty mad. He would be really angry. He wanted them to pick someone big and strong to represent their nation. But yet here, they sent out a shepherd boy. He would have thought, what is this? How dare you insult me and send a shepherd boy? And you can just imagine the Israelites who are standing there watching by. You can just imagine them thinking exactly that same thing. They would be thinking, what are we doing? Isn't this our fight? Isn't this our battle? But yet here, we're sending this shepherd to fight for us? We should be ashamed. Then Goliath, he continues cursing David, and he does so by his gods. Verse 43 still. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, do you know who the Philistine god is? Well, it's an idol called Dagon. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, this Dagon, this idol, was decapitated by the living God, the God of Israel. This Dagon had his limbs broken off. This Dagon, this idol, could not move himself. This Dagon could not talk, could not protect himself. 
but yet it was to this idol that Goliath was invoking. And in great arrogance, he continues to curse David, verse 44. Come here, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now we come to the climax of this story. David now was clearly the underdog, a shepherd boy against a big giant. David was now looking like the farmer to represent Tasmania, up against a U.S. Marine with all his full military gear. David really had no chance of winning. It, Goliath was from the Bronze Age. David was still stuck in the Stone Age, with just some rocks. But here, the climax. David responds to Goliath. David responded by putting Goliath's menacing terror, his lethal power, into perspective. You see, what did Goliath have to fight with? He had a, a spear, a sword, and a javelin. But what was in David's arsenal? Have a look at verse 45. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And then David, as plainly as he can put it in verse 47, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. So do you see what David was doing here? He was putting this battle scene into perspective. He was making clear to Goliath that in his arsenal were not just rocks, but the living God himself. And so then, what happened to Goliath? Well, what was Goliath doing all along? He was blaspheming against God, right? And do you know what the punishment for blasphemy is? In Leviticus 24, the one who blasphemes against God will be stoned to death. And that's exactly what happened in this story. David took out a stone, and these stones don't represent faith or humility or courage or word of God. No, they're just plain old rocks. And with this stone, he slung it and struck Goliath right in the forehead. David stoned Goliath for blasphemy. David stoned their hero. And then Goliath was beheaded, just like his god Dagon. So the massive problem that Israel faced, huge problem, God solved here through this unexpected hero, David, and with the most unexpected weapon, a stone. So that's the great David versus Goliath story many of us know and love. But now we, we must ask, what does this story teach us? Is it just to inspire us, to, to teach us to try to be like David in this story, to, to boost our self-esteem, to perhaps carry rocks around? Well, no. No. This story, in fact, teaches us something great about the whole of humanity. You see, humanity is like Israel here. All humanity, too, faces a problem, and a big problem. The problem of the Israelites was Goliath. Goliath was a threat to the people of God. Goliath was a threat to the people of God living rightly under the rule of God. And Goliath was a threat to the people living in the promised land of God. 
But the problem of all humanity is bigger than that. The problem is bigger than global warming. It's bigger than any global financial crisis that comes and goes. It's bigger than pollution. It's a problem that will stop people becoming the people of God. It's a problem that will stop people living rightly under the rule of God. And it's a problem that will stop people entering into the eternal promised land of God, into heaven. And it's a problem that is going to kill us. And there's nothing we can do about it. You see, the problem of all humanity, the problem we all share, is sin. Goliath was certainly a problem to the people of God. But sin is a much bigger problem than Goliath ever was. And sin is inherent in all of us. Because of sin, we have a broken relationship with God. Sin stops us from knowing God. Sin stops us from relating to God. Sin stops us from living rightly under God's rule. And sin stops us from entering into the promised land of God. And sin is going to kill us. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And this death is not just the physical death we'll all face one day. It's the eternal death. The death when we're thrown into fiery furnace of hell. So sin is the problem. Sin is our problem, the problem of all humanity, far bigger than Goliath ever was. So if this is our problem, is there a solution to our problem? Israel had a solution. That solution was David, that unexpected hero. However, though David was the unexpected hero, this story is in fact incomplete without chapter 16. Because in chapter 16, David was anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. You see, David was not just a young shepherd boy. He was the anointed one of God. David was the chosen one. Anointed one just means chosen one. And in Hebrew, is the word we know of as Messiah. In Greek is the word Christ. It just means chosen one, anointed one. And so David in this story was the Christ. But David was just a little Christ. David was the shadow of the ultimate Christ to come. David was the Christ that dealt with the problem of Israel. But he was looking forward to the ultimate Christ who would deal with the problem of all humanity. In this story, David was the unexpected hero and the ultimate Christ to come. Jesus Christ himself deals with the problem of all humanity. And Jesus Christ himself was also an unexpected hero. I mean, who could have ever imagined that a carpenter from Nazareth would be the hero to solve the problem of all humanity? Who could have imagined that? But Jesus is that hero. Jesus is the David in this story. Jesus is the ultimate Christ who fights our battles, who deals with our problem of sin. You see, in this story, we're not meant to be David. We're not meant to be inspired. We're not meant to have our self-esteem boosted. Rather, this story is to humble us. Because if we're anywhere in this story, we're on the sidelines with the Israelites. We're there watching David fight their fight for them. We're there on the sidelines watching Jesus fight 
our fight for us. So in this story, it's looking forward to Jesus, the ultimate Christ, the unexpected hero who deals with our problem of sin. And so if Jesus is then our unexpected hero, what then was his weapon? What was the weapon of Jesus? Well, it wasn't the five stones of David. The weapon of Jesus was his crucifixion, was his death on the cross. I mean, who could have ever imagined that? That the weapon to defeat death and sin was the death of our hero. It's just an absurd thought that the crucifixion could bring life. Now, just so you can grasp how, how absurd this thought is, in the ancient world, the word cross was so hideous, so odious, so shameful that any decent or well-respected human being would not even mention the word. It was just a terrible thing because it was left for the worst of criminals and only non-Roman citizens. But it was through this most unexpected way, this most unexpected weapon, that the fight against sin and death was won. So it's no wonder why Christians for the first few centuries and even today are mocked for worshipping a crucified God. Have a look at this slide. Now some of you may have seen this. Now this is uh, an inscription. It was found in 1857 uh, inscribed on plaza on a wall in Rome. This inscription is known as the Alexa Menos Graffito. So they had graffiti back then too. It's not a new invention. It dates back to, to the first few centuries. And in this picture, you see a human body. So firstly, actually, on your left, that's the inscription there on the stone. On your right, that's the outline of the inscription. So you see a human body, and you see the head of a donkey. And down the bottom, on your left, is a man. His name is Alexa Menos. And the inscription there reads, Alexa Menos which means Alexa Menos worships God. Do you understand what the message of this inscription is? It's actually making a mockery of Christians, that you would worship a crucified God, that you would worship a God who died on a cross. It's mocking Christians. And so you must think, this is crazy. It's so absurd. But it's through this most unexpected way, this most mysterious way, this most unexpected weapon, the crucifixion of Jesus, that our problem of sin and death is dealt with, so that we can now relate to God rightly, live under God properly, and enter into the promised land of God, into heaven. Jesus is the ultimate Christ. He is our unexpected hero, and his weapon, the crucifixion, is the unexpected weapon. So this is the classic David versus Goliath story. You see, it's not just an inspirational story, is it? And it was certainly not a simple underdog story. It was really a story about God, isn't it? A story about God who, in a sense, was the overdog. Now, I wasn't sure if that was a real word. I checked dictionary.com. It's a real English word. So God was like the overdog who was in control over this whole battle. It's a story about how God solved the problem of Israel through David. 
But that looked forward to how God solved the problem of all humanity through Jesus and through his death on the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but if there is a 600-pound gorilla charging at me, I want someone to step in and face that gorilla for me. I want to step on the sidelines and watch someone fight that gorilla to take on that problem. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. So let me ask you, where are you standing? Are you facing your problem of sin face on yourself? Or are you stepping on the sidelines and letting Jesus be your hero and deal with your problem of sin? Let me ask you to consider that tonight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done through Jesus Christ, your Son, the ultimate Christ. We thank you that Jesus is our unexpected hero and that his crucifixion the unexpected weapon, and that through the death of Jesus, we may relate to you properly, live under you rightly, and enter into your promised land, into heaven itself. And we pray for those amongst us who have yet to put their trust in Jesus, to stand on the sidelines and to allow Jesus be their hero. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.